Well, let's take our Bibles and turn tonight to Acts chapter 17 and to those verses that we had read to us earlier. What do you do when you find yourself in an alien environment surrounded by people who are hostile and resistant, uh, skeptical perhaps of your faith? How do you How do you stand for what you believe in that kind of context? Do you do so by by minimizing what you believe? In other words, realizing that people find some things offensive, well, edit those out of your presentation. Perhaps one of the things you should do is say nothing at all, in fact. Keep your faith under wraps, something private, personal. It's what the world is constantly telling us, isn't it? That Christian faith, any faith, is is a personal thing, it's alright for you, you keep it to yourself, and we'll be happy. Keep it internalized. Don't, don't let it out, don't talk about it, because then you're offending me because you're invading my space with your ideas. The world is hostile to us expressing our faith, so maybe we should be quiet about what we believe. Or if we're not quiet, let's modify what, what we say. Let's not say the things that are going to be offensive to people. Let's draw back from those harsh truths that regularly confront the world we find ourselves in. I think of living in a hostile environment whenever I come to this great chapter 17 of of Acts because here we find the Apostle Paul, we find him alone. You don't very often find Paul alone anywhere. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find that regularly, here's a man who loves to be with people, he loves to be with people he knows, He loves to be surrounded by friends who are with him in the journey, but here we find him and he's alone. He's on his own and he's in Athens. Athens, which was famous as then as it is today. Today it's famous for its financial crisis, but back then it was famous for other things. And the Athens of Paul's day is actually far more like the Philadelphia or the New York or the London of our day. Athens more resembles the post-postmodern world that we live in today. You would find everything there then. You would find skepticism. You would find supernaturalism, anti-supernaturalism, rationalism, mysticism, superstition, materialism, and despair in almost equal measures. The kind of things you find regularly in our society today. In Athens, Greek culture had reached its high watermark centuries before Paul got there. Uh, In the great heady days of its success, people like Socrates taught his brilliant student, Plato, and Plato's student, Aristotle. Those three men are like great figures, great giants in the land of intellectual thought in Europe and much of their thinking underlines or undergirds the the development of European civilization. Others taught then Epicurus and Zeno were colleagues. Epicurus who formed the Epicureans or Epicureanism or Zeno the founder of Stoicism, two of the dominant philosophies. Well, those were the great heady days of the past. It's a bit like visiting London and seeing the great buildings that were there during the time of empire 
The empire is long gone, but the buildings remain. And the Athens that Paul discovered when he went there looked a bit like the Athens that we see today. The ruins that we see today were like that when Paul went 2,000 years ago. It was the ruins of the Parthenon were still there as they are today. Corinth was a far more significant city in Paul's day, but Athens still had the most famous university in the world. It was legendary for its artwork, its intellectual sophistication, and its devotion to the gods. In fact, there were so many gods, so uh, much was it a religious center that Petronius once quipped that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. There were so many of them. Whenever you looked in Athens, idolatry dominated the city's art, its architecture, its public spaces. Images of the Greek pantheon of gods filled the many temples of the Acropolis that rose above the city. Shrines, monuments, altars to Hermes abounded everywhere. Another gods lined the marketplace, the amphitheater. The economic and academic life of the city was in the grip of idolatry. While he was there, while he was there, Paul looks at these things as he's going through the marketplace, as he's pushing around the old books and the bookstalls there in the marketplace to see if he can find something to take home with him, to, to read of an, of an evening as he goes around seeing the tourist destinations, but much as we would today. The apostle is gripped by a holy anger. Do you notice the word that's used in verse 16? He is provoked. He is provoked while Paul was waiting for his friends to, to arrive from Berea, Timothy and Silas. His spirit is provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I visited the Elgin Marbles in the British Museum, a massive frieze from that period, from the Parthenon. It's exquisite workmanship. It's exactly the kind of idol that distressed the Apostle Paul. We go and we look at it, and we admire the craftsmanship today. Paul saw that firsthand in its place, in Athens. And it provoked him. It provoked him to anger. In fact, he saw that the place was full of idols. The Greek word means swamped with them, stuffed with them. Wherever you could find anywhere to put one, people had put idols up in Athens. See, the first thing I want you to learn, what, what do you do when you find yourself in a kind of hostile environment? Well, here's what Paul did. He was provoked to anger by what he saw there. The Greek word for provoked is the word paroxuna. It's the word that gives us our word paroxysm, and it has absolutely nothing to do with dyeing your hair. Just in case you thought peroxide came from that. No, uh, it, it is a paroxysm. It is to be in the grip of anger, fury. He is moved to the very depths of his being. In other words, what is the first thing we see about Paul in Athens? One of the first things we see is the very thing that people who are not Christians, and perhaps you're here this evening and you're not, this is the kind of thing that kind of confirms that Christian people are angry people. They have, they have kind of a basic 
subterranean anger about everything and anything that is going on in the world. Is that the way you feel? Well, maybe this confirms that 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 has an element of truth in it. Maybe you think that Christians are in the grip of religious bigotry of one kind or another. Well, I come back to this story and I invite Christian people to come back to this story and to see Paul's response here. Because rather than celebrate the religious culture of Athens, and I'm thinking here of the religious culture of Athens, Paul calls that culture anti-God. With all the gods, he says it is anti-God. And with all the celebration of their philosophy, he calls it ignorance. We we probably won't get that far this evening, but he calls it ignorance. I think even Christians today, reading the story, and maybe you're one of them, might be tempted to think Paul has gone too far. That Paul needs to take a more civilized view of religious art and culture. After all, every cathedral, every cathedral in the world uh, has artwork, is, is a work of art on its own, or should be. Uh, if it's been properly built and properly designed and has artwork in it, very often hosts art exhibitions. Virtually every old church is designed to be beautiful and may contain paintings and statues. And the deep irony is that many churches, many churches in Christendom, are designed on principles first laid down by the ancient Greeks. Paintings and art are wonderful in themselves, But where they are tied to religious ideas or worship, then the artwork becomes what it had become in Athens. It becomes part of an idolatrous system that deflects attention away from the one it supposedly depicts onto the objects that we see. Paul is stirred by anger. And Paul starts to speak. The very idea of idolatry ran counter to God and diminished his glory and provoked the heart of Saul. There was a man called Henry Martin. Came from a very good family, came from a very wealthy family, went to the very best universities, but felt called to go and reach Muslims for Christ. And he had a discussion with a Muslim on one occasion. And this man used a Russian saying about a Muslim leader who had killed so many Christians that Christ had grabbed Mohammed's clothes and pleaded with him to stop the slaughter of his people. Henry Martin could not disguise his reaction. He explained to his Muslim friend, he said, you know, I could not endure existence. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always to be thus dishonored by people. There's a sense in which That's what grips the Apostle Paul. God is dishonored wherever he is represented, either by a piece of artwork made of marble or paint, or by the mental images that we create in our minds. You know that kind of language we use sometimes when we say, I like to think of God as X or Y. When I used to go around universities and we would have big question and answer sessions with hundreds of students there who were really hostile to the the things of God, some bright spark would get up and go to the microphone and he'd say, well, I've listened to what you have to say, but I like to think of God as, you know, not condemning, kind of open and receiving and generous-hearted and, and so on. And 
basically describing themselves, of course, and not the God who's there. Well, you know that's idolatry, don't you? Because you're creating a mental image of God every bit as much as people created metal images or, or other images of God in the past. What does Paul do about it? Well, look at verse 17. He reasoned with them in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He engages people in discussion. He doesn't so much get up into a pulpit and preach as I'm doing. He, he engages people in the marketplace and in the synagogue in religious discussion about religious topics. He finds himself in Athens, famous agora, the commerce and world, clashing worlds views uh, center of Athens where people of all kinds of, with all kinds of ideas as well as people and, uh, going through the normal course of their business came together in a great bundle of life and energy. Paul is there. And as he is there, he grabs the attention of these two foremost philosophies of the day, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. It says this, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. The Epicureans taught that the chief end of man was the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. They were consistent Materialists. They did not deny the existence of the gods, of gods, but they believed that the gods had absolutely no influence in people's daily lives. They were indifferent to the affairs of human beings, and therefore the gods neither needed to be worshipped on the one hand, nor did they on their part ever meddle or interfere in the affairs of men and women in the world. They believed that at death we disintegrate, we disappear, we vanish, that there is no life after death. They said that the wise person is a person who does not fear divine retribution and who does not have any hope of reward after death. In other words, the Epicureans were practical atheists. Live for today. Live for this moment. Live for here and now. That was their message. And it's an up-to-date message, isn't it, Professor Richard Dawkins has written this, if you are an atheist, you know, you believe that this is the only life you're going to get. It's a precious life. It's a beautiful life. It's something we should live to the full to the end of our days. Well, if you're religious and you believe in another life somehow, that means you don't live this life to the full because you think you're going to get another one. That's an awfully negative way to live a life. Being an atheist frees you up to live this life properly, happily, and fully. The Epicureans would have agreed with Richard Dawkins. I'm sure he's encouraged by that. The Stoics, on the other hand, saw self-mastery and self-control as the greatest virtue. They believed that, that such self-mastery came from an indifference to pain or pleasure, that you got to a place, a space in your life where neither pain nor pleasure moved you. You were unmoved by any of these lesser emotions. They believed that, they were pantheists, they believed that everything is God and God is everything. They felt that in the universe there was a principle called the Logos, a rational principle that integrated everything, that permeated everything, that kind of interconnected everything, this rational principle of life. When the Stoic poet, such as Aratus of 
Soli said of the Logos, we are all his offspring, he meant that there was a divine spark in everybody. Everybody. There's a bit of God in everybody. A bit of rationality, of reason, of meaning in everybody. All of us have this. A wise person for a Stoic was someone who saw their, his or her connection with everything else in the universe through the Logos, through this rational principle of the mind, cultivating an attitude of self-sufficient contentment, impervious to changing circumstances. To the Stoic, history wasn't going anywhere. History was just a cycle of chaos followed by order, followed by chaos, followed by order, followed by chaos, and order, and so on. They liked to think that God was near because God was inside you, but they would have rejected Paul's language, that history is moving towards a date in the future, moving towards judgment, moving towards a destination. And they would have rejected his call for repentance. These were the kinds of people that Paul was speaking to. And we, we read about the kind of reaction to Paul that they found. Some people despised him. They said, what does this babbler wish to say, they said. You see, their default setting was that whenever someone came along with an idea that they didn't recognize or hadn't come up with themselves, that person was obviously an idiot. That was what they thought. And they use a word here in the Greek, spermologos is the word. It literally means a seed picker. Somebody goes around picking up this idea and that idea and mixing them all together in a kind of jumble of life and then regurgitating these ideas in a new form. That's what they said of Paul. You're just a seat picker. You're not saying anything creative or original or new. You're just a bit of an idiot, really. I th again, I think of Richard Dawkins. Not the idiot bit, but, but what he says about people with big brains as opposed to people with little brains. Big-brained people believe that science has all the answers, period. Big-brained people don't believe in God. It's little people, little-brained people like you who believe in God. That's one of his arguments. In fact, he writes this, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and to evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, or even because of, the lack of evidence. So you see, do you see, mockery has come onto the scene very early in the Christian story. If, if people mock what you believe, don't think that's something new, something that hasn't happened before, something strange and, and uh, distinctive about this generation in which you live. Let me tell you, going right back to the very beginning, mockery was part of what it meant to hold to Christian truth. Some despised him. There were others who didn't get it. Look at verse 18. Others said, he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities. You know, people will always take you up the wrong way. This happens to me all the time. And I put it down to my accent that you don't understand. Some people put it down to my humor, which is incomprehensible, I, 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 I admit. Uh, but you laugh at it, so you keep getting it. See, if you stop laughing, I wouldn't even try anymore. But they said, verse 18, see, he did it again. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching... Jesus and the resurrection. Basically, he was talking about Jesus and Anastasis. And because Anastasis is a, is a feminine name, they thought he was talking about Jesus and his wife, Anastasia. <laughs> they thought it was a male and a female God he was talking about. He was actually talking about Jesus and the resurrection. 
He was rapping on about Jesus and the resurrection so much that they went away with the idea that he was a couple he was talking about. They just didn't get it. And then there were others, thirdly, who were just simply interested in talking for talking's sake. About anything or everything. These were people who liked argument for argument's sake. I know people like this. I have a, a good friend who whose thesis for his PhD was on the subject of vagueness. Uh, he may watch this, so I've got to be careful what I say. I never quite got to the bottom of what the PhD dissertation was about because actually he couldn't tell me because it was rather vague. <laughs> But, but I could talk. I, we could talk for hours. I mean, we sp spent hours talking. Because he loved talking. Uh, in circles. About everything. And we'd go down rabbit trails. Until eventually I realized that we weren't making any progress at all. We never were going anywhere. There was nowhere to go to. He was actually not wanting to go anywhere. He wanted the discussion for discussion's sake. Philosophy for him was that. It was talking about truth, but never arriving at truth. Partly in Athens, there were people like that. So what do you do when you come across this kind of scenario? People like this. What does Paul do? Well, I want you to notice the next thing we learn is that Paul actually confronts the world. Look at verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know what these things mean. Then there's this comment by Luke. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. In other words, what Luke is saying is this. Don't get the idea that these are seekers after truth. These people had no interest in the gospel, no interest or love of truth, no interest in reaching a destination. They were along for the ride, and that was it. They loved was novelty. So what does Paul do with these people? Does he play along? Does he realize, as I came to realize with a friend of mine, that really argument wasn't getting anywhere? No. What does he do? Well, he confronts them. Do you see that? Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Does that sound like a compliment to you? The very language that's used here is used in chapter 25, 19, and it's used in a mocking way there, and I think it's being used in a mocking way here. I think there is a, this is being damned with faint praise. It's when someone comes up to me after what I thought was a rip-roaring sermon, and they say to me, that was interesting. That's their way of saying, actually, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. But it was interesting. And, and what Paul is saying here is, I perceive it that every way you're very religious. Well, we know that it revolted him, the religiosity of Athens. It is an ambiguous compliment at best. But he goes on to find a point of contact with them. I also found an altar, he says, with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, the deities of the Greek and the Roman pantheon were believed to supervise absolutely every area of your life. Love and war, science and art, land and sea, labor and leisure, health and finances. They covered everything you could imagine. 
but there was this lingering unease among people that somehow or other there might be something that they were that had been missed off the list it was a kind of angst that somehow or other they might have missed somebody out supposing there was a God out there and they had not appeased him and supposing that God one day went against them in some way or other got them they 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 got their jobs covered by one God and they got their marriages covered by another God and the, the kids covered by another God but maybe there was something they hadn't thought about maybe their pension wasn't covered by some God somewhere so they need to make sure that they covered everything the things they could think about and the things they couldn't think about and so they had these unknown gods we, we, have, a, we have the record of a, a Greek geographer from the second century AD called Posianius and he records that altars of the gods named unknown were to be found in Athens in the second century so this is a historical he also mentions an altar at Olympia in Greece with an inscription which was recently rediscovered at Pergamum which and has been restored which is ascribed to unknown gods so here this was a way of emergency covering covering your tail and Paul seizes, seizes on this admission of ignorance in the intellectual capital of the world in order to announce the existence of the true God. Now look how he does it. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Do you see what he's saying? How can the God who made everything in the universe be confined to a stone home? It's very interesting that as Paul talks to these Athenians, remember these are Greeks, they're not Jews, they've had no exposure uh, except a cursory exposure to, to, to Judaism, they've had no exposure to Christianity. It's interesting that Paul in his dealings with these people relies heavily on images and language from what we call the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. That's very interesting, isn't it? We think of the Hebrew Scriptures being devoted entirely to speaking to Jewish people but in fact what Paul teaches us here is that the Hebrew scriptures in fact speak to everybody that was the way it was meant to be God spoke to the Jews in order that he might speak to the world they were meant to be a light to the Gentiles and some of the things which God has to deal with among the Jews throughout the Hebrew scriptures the period covered by the Hebrew scriptures are the very things that Paul was confronting here in Athens. Idolatry. You go through the Old Testament and idols are nearly in every page. These Jews didn't seem to be able to worship God alone. They worshiped the God of Israel and their idols all the way through. And so you find language that you can use here. And so he goes to Isaiah, for example. He's reflecting the language of Isaiah. 42 verse 5, thus says the Lord, the God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives life and breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Here is a Greek-speaking Jew, the kind of language you'd expect a Greek-speaking Jew to use when speaking to Greek pagans with the gospel. God is not confined to sacred spaces. The living God cannot be confined to man-made structures or temple. The living God cannot be constrained by anything. That was a simple, straightforward point. The pagans built shrines and temples as if the gods could be confined there. 
And when the pagans were converted to Christianity, what did they do? They brought their paganism with them and they returned the compliment. They built the Christian equivalent of their pagan temple. Eventually, they even introduced into their Christian buildings pagan priests and sacrifices Christianized in a Christian kind of guise. So Christian ministers and Christian members imitated the heathen when they called their buildings the house of God or the sanctuary. That was language from the pagans. It wasn't Christian language. They even had specialized parts of their buildings that were roped off from the general public. If you go to a cathedral, for example, you will find the choir area is not just for the choir to sing. It's an area that's roped off. The general public are not allowed in there. You cannot go there. Only the clerical class can go there. It is excluded from the ordinary run-of-the-mill people. You're excluded. Paul knew what he was talking about when he, quoting Isaiah or reflecting the language of Isaiah, said God had only ever one, allowed or authorized one physical building to live in. That was a temple in Jerusalem. And when it had run its course, God authorized its demolition and destruction once and for all. It's gone. And in this new covenant era, Christ is our final temple. And men and women like you and I who trust in Jesus are being built into that final temple like living stones being built into a, a holy temple in the Lord. The people are the temple. The people are the temple being built into Christ who is God's final perfect temple. God is not tied to a building. And what Paul says then is as relevant today as it was then. Then secondly, the Creator God is not dependent on His creatures. In verse 24-25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. That phrase, look at that phrase. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. How often have you heard God needs my hands to do his work in the world. God needs my feet to serve him in the world. God does not need human hands to serve him. He does not. He may choose to use your hands. He may choose to use your voice. He may choose to use your feet. But he doesn't need you. The God of the Bible doesn't need anybody, doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. He is a self-sufficient God. Look at the way in which, in which he spells this out. He says God has made everything, God rules everything, and God supplies everything. God has made everything. God made the world and everything in it. This was astounding to these people to whom Paul was teaching. The Epicureans believed in the eternity of matter. When I was studying science, the scientists still believed in a steady state. They believed in the eternity of matter that it had always been. The Epicureans believed that. The Stoics were pantheists. They had a problem with this part of Paul's talk because they said everything is God and God is everything, therefore God couldn't have made himself. Ridiculous. Notice Paul, God made everything. We don't make a place for God because God has made a place for us. Listen to these words from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. All these things. God made everything there is. God, secondly, rules everything there is. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. That's an absolute title. He is the Lord. That is, He's the ruler and possessor of everything. The Lord, the earth is the Lord's, Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. A pagan king once discovered this for himself. He'd, been, he'd lost his mind for a period. He'd lost his mind, gone, went around in the garden, roped off. Nobody was allowed to see him. For years, drooling, sitting in a corner, drooling and not talking to anyone, he had lost his sanity. When he recovered his senses by an amazing work of God, Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself. And he said this, At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? None can say to him, What have you done? You think of it, and it's his. You imagine it, and it's his. He is the Lord and Master of it all. The psalmist put it like this. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God made everything, rules everything, gives everything. Do you see that? The Creator, who is the Lord, supplies life and breath. And everything, we call this in theology, common grace. God gives this to everybody, whether he's a believer or an unbeliever, a Christian or not a Christian. Religious or pagan, whatever they are, God is good to all that he has made. And man's needs are summed up comprehensively in this statement. Life, breath, and everything. Life, breath, everything. I mean, what's the most basic thing you need when you wake in the morning? If you're going to wake, you need to be breathing. You wouldn't be awake. You wouldn't wake up. Life and breath are kind of basic, fundamental things. They're more necessary than the clothes you wear. Well, I'm glad you're wearing them because that would be frightening. But, but, but they're more necessary ultimately, aren't they? Life and breath and, and then everything. Everything covers everything, doesn't it? Covers the clothes you wear and the house you live in, the job you have and the friends you've got, and the family you belong to. It covers everything. Everything. Life, breath, everything. Comprehensive. You can't Leave everything out. Everything has come from God. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, the plants for man to cultivate. He may bring forth fruit from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. I've always been glad that verse is in the Bible. Wine to gladden the heart of man. I underline it. Oil to make his face shine. I'm not so sure what that's about. The bread to strengthen a man's heart. God made everything. God rules everything. God gives everything. So self-confident people cannot contribute or add anything to God. Self-sufficient people cannot negotiate with God. I'll do this, you do that. 
Paul himself had once been morally self-sufficient and he had to learn the hard way that you cannot argue terms with the God who made and rules and gives everything there is. Well, the Creator God, thirdly, is not disengaged from His creation. This is where I'm going to end this evening in verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live in the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. For this God shows a particular interest with human beings. It is with humans that this God is concerned. He has reached out to humanity particularly. And you notice the Apostle here takes a position on the discussion about human origins. Humanity, he says, came from one human source made in the image of God, from Adam. And this God has laid out the allotted periods and boundaries. That has to do with the phenomena of history, the periods in which we live, the boundaries of humanity, where they live, the, the habitable regions of the, of the earth, the, the changes in seasons. God is in sovereign over history, over your story, my story, the world's story, but also where we live and where we can live and so on, everything, all of that stuff is in his hands. In the, in the language of our confession, he has ordained Whatever comes to pass, whatsoever comes to pass, has been ordained by him. And God's other purpose was to draw his creatures into a quest to discover their creation. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is a bad place to leave the sermon tonight because... As usual, I've overprepared. And you don't have the stomach to go on. I can see that. But I'm going to stop here because here's the picture of the people with whom you and I live and move and have our being. This is what God wants for them. He wants that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, but they're not doing that. You see, the very language that's used here is negative. They're not doing that. They're not seeking Him, and they're not finding Him. They have no light of revelation. They are groping in the dark. This, here is Paul, you see, describing these highly intellectual, brilliant people of Athens who've got it all figured out. Paul is saying to them, do you see? With all your knowledge, you don't know God. With everything that you have, you do not have God. You are groping in the dark. You are looking for reality but have not found the truth. Oh yes, you've seen glimpses of the truth. God in common grace leaves his fingerprints all over the place. They're there. Even one of their poets, a Stoic poet, Aratus, said, We are his offspring. And Paul finds in that little statement, he finds a hint, a clue that the poet could understand somehow, somehow understand in a fractional way something of the creation of man in the image of God. But it hadn't led him to God. In other words, people, people who don't know God can say true things about Him. People who, who don't know God 
can say true things about life and reality and relationships. People who don't know God are not necessarily bad people morally. This is not about being bad or good. Christian people that I know are not all good. What's happened is, however, that they have found God, or he has found them. He has found them. So I'm going to leave you hanging midair with these people. These people who had so much knowledge. We, we see it, don't we? When we were living in London, the, the BBC regularly put on these series, these interminable series of people who were in the search for meaning, the search for life in outer space, the search for God, search for our origins. And these things always sounded the same, seemed the same, brilliantly filmed, brilliantly, brilliantly filmed and narrated. But they never, ever found the way to the truth. Never. Never found it. They're actually, Paul says to these people, their search for the reality and their search for truth was not a sign of their cleverness. And these programs that we put on television are not a sign that we are superior to these people back then. Rather, they're a sign that we are no wiser than they were. Without God, and without hope in the world. I'm leaving you there, but I'm conscious that someone is here tonight and you don't know where to go from there. And all I would say to you is this. I am so confident that if you call on his name, he will hear you. I'm confident of this. Tonight you go home. You don't believe in God. I respect that. But I'm asking you to make an experiment, will you? Will you say to the air, to the sky, to what you think is the nothingness, God, if you are there, please make yourself known to me. If you dare, pray that prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have such confidence in you, and great confidence in your truth, great confidence in your love to us, that we believe that someone who is desperate to find reality and truth, if they call on your name, your word says that if we call on your name that you will hear and you will answer from heaven and you will save. And we pray that tonight someone in this room would do that very thing, call on your name, and that you would hear from heaven and that you would save. In Jesus' name, amen.